The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. All of your problems are due to sin. Every single thing that pains and plagues and afflicts and aggravates and torments and tries you, everything is due to sin. Even if you've been saved. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're saved, but you're still a sinner. And the sin that you commit plagues your life. But more than just you being a sinner, you know a whole bunch of sinners. They sit next to you at work. They teach you in school. They share your dinner table at home. They sit next to you in church. They preach to you at church. You know a whole bunch of sinners, and their sin also bears fruit in your life. You're a sinner. You know sinners. But even more than that, you live in a sin-cursed world. Sometimes the land yields its harvest. But sometimes it just yields thorns and thistles and hurricanes and earthquakes and cancer and birth defects and fertility problems and a host of other things that never occurred in Eden, but have nonetheless become commonplace. They're not anybody's fault directly, but they happen. You're a sinner. You know sinners. You live in a sin-cursed world. And finally, because of the fall, you have a foe who with his spiritual forces of evil wages a sinful war against you in the heavenly places. Absolutely everything that troubles you is due to sin. Wow, is that depressing. But it's true. Which is why today's text is good news. Gospel. We've been working through Ephesians chapter 1, and today we will be focusing on verses 7 to 10. You recall that verses 3 to 14 are really one great big sentence, really all hanging together. And they begin with the declaration that God is blessed, that God is to be praised because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The following verses, then after verse 3, lay out many of the most significant of those blessings. You recall that last week we talked about God choosing His children to be holy and blameless and loving heirs in His presence. That was good news. Because we were anything but holy and blameless and loving heirs. That was good news, and this morning it continues right on in that vein. A particular focus in these verses, the main point of this good news, I think is even heightened by the fact that we live in such a messed up world. The main point we'll see in these four verses, 7 to 10, is just this. God has prepared mighty works in Christ. And you need to regularly see them. God has prepared mighty works. Mighty, sin-overthrowing, sin-reversing, sin-destroying works. He's prepared mighty works in Christ. And especially because this world is so plagued by sin... You need to regularly see those works. See them with your mind's eye. To see them and grasp them and embrace them. 
God has prepared mighty works in Christ, and you need to regularly see them. We'll approach this passage by first looking at two mighty works that God has prepared in Christ. Two mighty works, and then after that, we're going to ask a question. Why are they here? Not why did he do them, but why are they in the text? Why did he write them? Two mighty works, followed by a question. Let me read the passage. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God reigns over his creation in power. He is not distant and uninvolved. He is not a casual observer of our world, but is an intimate, careful ruler of his world. Last week we saw in verses 4 to 6, this intimate, careful reign of God over his creation was displayed in his election, in his choosing. What glorious grace. Today we continue right on with that. And, and this text gives me a chance to lean on something that I didn't quite emphasize heavily enough last week. Look back a little bit, starting in verse 4. You see these phrases. He chose us in him. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, glorious grace, a blessing to, to us given in the beloved, that is, in Christ. And then right into verse 7, in him we have redemption. So we've got the election, the predestining, the, the, uh, the redemption, in him, in him, in him, in him. Put all these statements together, we have the first mighty work that God has prepared in Christ. The first work, God has prepared your redemption in Christ. God has prepared your redemption in Christ. He chose you to be holy and blameless. He predestined you to adoption of sons. What amazing grace. So we left it last week. But you gotta ask. That's amazing grace. He's stunningly gracious, yes. But isn't he himself also holy and blameless? How can a holy and blameless, perfectly just God turn a face of grace towards wicked rebels? How can he do that? Wouldn't that violate his justice to be gracious? Most of us here know the answer to this dilemma. Most of us here do, but I want you to pause. Paul knows you know this. He assumes it. He's writing to an audience, you recall verse 1, the saints in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and they never would have become faithful in Christ Jesus and saints if they didn't know the answer to this dilemma. He knows you know it, but he's written it to you anyway, and maybe there's a reason. We're going to get to that a little bit later when we ask the question. But for now, sit and listen to this. Consider it again. Ponder it, please. There's a reason he wrote it to you. 
But I am sure that there are some people here this morning who need to stop right here and listen to this for the first time. Or maybe listen to it seriously for the first time. God may want to speak to you this morning through this text. But there's a little bit of background that might be helpful to you to make sense of verse 7. The Bible tells us that people are born rebels against the only eternal God, their creator and judge. We grow up then, and sometimes either by God working through our consciences, or perhaps through some religious training, somehow or another, we become aware that we've got a problem with God. He's perfect and holy and just and blameless, and we're not. And sometimes that comes home to a person, and it strikes them, and they get it, that there's a great chasm, a vast and wide canyon that has opened up between us and who we are and God and His majesty. Separation from God is normal in this life. And we experience it in a bunch of different ways. We experience it as guilt for sin, fear of the unknown, fear of death, anxiety about how we're going to eat or pay the bills or deal with our families. Isolation from other people is the norm. That's also a symptom of isolation from God. We experience that isolation from people. We experience pressure to constantly perform and prove ourselves worthy, worthy of their acceptance, of their admiration. We experience all of this stuff in life. The separation from God shows itself in just a hundred different ways. But the pain of this separation here, on this earth, it pales in comparison to what the separation will be like there after the judgment in the next life. Sorrow and pain and fear and rage and isolation are all magnified when it all becomes permanent and God's just judgment is poured out on those who remain in rebellion against Him. It is devastating. It's even a haunting reality that comes home to you and grabs you. It doesn't grab everybody. Some people push it away. They're able to resist it. But when it grabs people, when the human heart gets a hold of this, the very next thing it does is it grabs hold of some plan to fix that problem, to bridge that gap. The very next thing, we go and we plant ourselves on a bridge that we think is going to get us across, only to find out that we've actually, we're actually standing on a bridge that is itself collapsing. We grab a hold of, of massive timbers and firm cables and ropes, only to find that they too are falling into the chasm. In ourselves, we humans, without fail, always turn to some sort of personal effort to bridge this gap between us and a holy God. We go looking for an answer to the question, how can I get right with God? How can I fix this separation? And we come up with a thousand different answers. But they're all in the same sphere. They're all really one answer. They're all the same type. I will give up certain habits. I will do certain things. I will pray in these certain ways with more frequency. I will obey some strict rules. I'll make some sacrifices. I'll offer animal sacrifices. I'll set up rituals. I'll be better. I'll give more. I'll stop doing that. A hundred different answers. Lots and lots of answers that are really just all the same answer. They're all in the same sphere. You go looking for the answer to how can I be right with God and we all come up with the same answer in me. 
in my effort. There are 10,000 religions in the world. 9,999 of them say, do this. It's in you. Fix it. Change. That's the bridge that we try to cross. But it doesn't work. Now, I'd be willing to bet that in a group this size, there are some people here this morning who not only are separated from God, but also know it. They're in touch with that, and they're grappling with it. And if that's you, I commend you. You're dealing with the right problem. You're working on the important problem. Everything that plagues us in all of life is due to the sin problem, our separation from God, and you're working on it. Maybe that's even why you came here this morning, to come to church and try to find some answer. If so, God has good news for you this morning. Now we're ready for verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Speaking to Christians, but also showing the way to non-Christians, those who are not yet followers of Christ. This passage makes clear which sphere, in which sphere do we find redemption? Redemption, that is a buying out of, of a slave, really, of a slave, out of a bondage and a punishment and a separation, a buying out of that person and a liberating of them, a giving this person over to now a free and joyous and glorious relationship with God. Redemption, where is it found? In me? No, in Him is redemption, in Christ alone. God has planned a way to redeem sinners. A way. A single way to redeem sinners. There's only one. God the Father hung God the Son on a wooden cross to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus, God who came down to earth, and took on a body. He's not a man. It's reunification. There we go. <laughs> a little loose there. Okay. Sorry about that. It is not talking about a harmonious reunification where everything peacefully comes back to God and it's all hunky-dory at the end. A number of people throughout history have tried to use this verse talk about some sort of universalism, that everybody gets saved and everybody gets restored to God and it all works out just fine for everybody in the end. It's not saying that. That would, in fact, directly contradict several other things in this letter and throughout the rest of the Bible. It's not talking about some universal saving thing. It's actually getting at more of the every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. At the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess, but it won't be a happy, joyous thing for all those knees and all those tongues. All things will be subjected to Christ. The rebellion will end and the war will be over, not because everybody wins, but because the king finally comes and puts a stop to it. So we're not talking about some universal salvation. We're talking about an end to strife. All that sin that leads to all of our problems, all of that is going to be gone one day. The creation will be brought into order, reunited under one head, Christ. 
Now, you've probably already heard that too. But stop and think for a second. I can't even imagine living in a world without sin. Can you? Can you imagine what that would be like? Our whole vocabulary would change because we would have lots and lots and lots of words that meant nothing anymore. What would murder mean? What would rape mean? What would theft mean? Nothing. It'd be concepts attached to a distant reality that we didn't experience. One day our existence will be like that. Get a hold of that in your mind. We're going to ponder that a little more in a second when we get down to the question. But think about it. This is all going to happen one day in the fullness of time. It's not that way now. But the reunification has begun and will one day be complete. The rupture between God and man that happened at the fall is being reversed now for some in that first mighty work of God, in the redemption. We just talked about that in verses 4 to 7. That's his main subject there in 4 to 7. Redeemed by Christ's blood. As chapter 2 puts it, you can look ahead to verses 13 to 16. It talks about how some from amongst the Jews and some from amongst the Gentiles who themselves were alienated from each other, some of them have been reunited together in Christ. And then they themselves in that one body at the cross are reunited to God the Father. The reunification has begun between people separated from God. It started, but it's not done. The plan is to be completed at the fullness of time. We don't know when the fullness of time is. I can't tell you when that is. No man knows the hour of the day. It has always been kept hidden. There are little clues here and there, and some of us might dispute about exactly when and how it works out, but the one thing we all agree on is that we don't know exactly when it's going to be, but it's still coming. It's still future for us. We also don't know, we also have not known throughout time past how God was going to do this. See that word mystery in there? It was a profound mystery. What's God going to do with this creation that got wrecked in Genesis chapter 2? What's He going to do about it? Is Satan going to win? Is this the best it's going to be? And the New Testament talks a lot about the mystery and packs different aspects of it. And we'll talk a little bit more about it when we go through Ephesians, a little further into Ephesians. But despite these different aspects of the mystery, they all center around one common pillar. Something remarkable, if you think about it. It's a little old hat for us now, but prior to us, it was remarkable. God taking on a body, coming to earth, and dying to redeem his people. Foolishness to Gentiles. A great offense to Jews. But for us who believe the power of God, working out these mighty acts of our redemption, and one day the reunification, God's going to fix things. And He's done that through a crucified Messiah. Nobody would have guessed that. God is prepared for the reunification of all things by appointing and enthroning a ruler. He will bring all things in all realms, things in heaven and things on earth, Things in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. He's going to bring them all together. He's going to bring them into order. They will heal next to Christ. 
Jesus walked the earth and the demons knew and feared him. Satan attempted to, to uh, derail his mission first by temptation and then by uh, trial and execution. But the Christ has been raised, has ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is discussed a little further in chapter 1, verses 20 and 22 in that area. He's raised, he's seated there, and he's awaiting the time when all of his enemies will be put under his feet. Everything will be brought back into order. This should give us hope. Especially when we look around and see how much everything is not in order. God has done mighty works in Christ. He's prepared for your redemption in Christ. He's prepared for the reunification of all things in Christ. These are mighty, majestic, sovereign works of God. But something in me is drawn to ask, why? Why tell me about what you have done and are doing and will do? God, why did you write that here? I mean, I'm already a Christian. Why preach the gospel to me? You're not even actually telling me to do anything. And actually, precious little I could do when it comes to the reunification part. How am I going to bring everything to head under you? How, how am I going to cause the spiritual forces of evil to submit to you? I can't. Something in me wants to ask the question, why did he tell me this? I'm sure that part of what leads me is just curiosity in the study process. A good question to ask, this is free of charge for Bible study techniques here, a good question to ask when studying the Bible is ask why. Not the whys that are actually in the text where there might be some reasoning going on in there, but to step back and ask God, why did you put that in here at all? That kind of question can move you beyond just the content, what's there, to the intent. Why is it there? It's a good question to ask when studying the Bible, and I'm sure part of why I come to this and say why is that I'm thinking like that. But within the text itself, there are a couple things that beg to be explored. And as I saw them, I began to ask this question. One of them we already talked about, why preach the gospel to Christians? But something else here is in verses 7 and 8. It's a little complicated here again. We need to work through this. And I think that when we're done with it, it should cause us to ask, why? So look with me there again at verses 7. The end of verse 7, the beginning of 8. Redemption, forgiveness, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let me pause there for just a minute. So far, this makes sense. It sounds a lot like verse 6. God saved his children by grace. Forgiveness in accordance with rich grace. That makes sense. But the sentence continues, and it uses grace as a pivot point. Grace closes out one thought in verse 7, and opens another in verse 8. Look at it there. He gives the grace of redemption, verse 7, and God gives the grace of wisdom and insight, verse 8. His grace is expressed to us in the form of wisdom and insight. Now, some of the ways that our English Bibles uh, punctuate things or capitalize certain letters, some of those ways might lead us to believe 
that it's actually talking about God's wisdom and insight. As if God has done something wise. Or God has wisely acted so and such and whatnot. Actually, though, there are better reasons for seeing this as referring to human wisdom and insight. Not human wisdom and insight that comes from us. It comes from God. It's given to us by grace. But it's the human being, the saved person, who is rendered wise in understanding. One reason for thinking this is based on an argument from the Greek grammar. Well, another has to do with a similar expression in Colossians, in the first chapter there. Another hint, though, is right here in this chapter. You can look down at verse 17. Down in verse 17, Paul is praying for the believers here. And his prayer is for wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's what he wants God to give. Lord, give to them a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. And that sounds similar to what's being talked about here. Wisdom and insight that allows us to understand something. This mysterious will. Sounds similar. Those are all good reasons, but the best reason, I think, for seeing this as human wisdom and understanding is right actually in the next phrase, the beginning of verse 9. And here, the ESV, it's printed in your bulletin insert, or if you're looking at the New International Version Bible, you have a footnote. It's got some different punctuation. Either of those might help you a little bit more. Verse 9 is an extension, an expansion of verse 8. Watch the clarification going on there, the, the re-explanation. It reads like this. God lavished grace on us. Grace coming in all wisdom and insight. The grace of wisdom and insight that enables us to understand the mystery. God graciously lavished us with wisdom, making known to us a great mystery. The graciously giving us wisdom is tied to the making known the mystery. Without the wisdom, understand the mystery. That's why some regarded the mystery as foolish or of great offense. They didn't have the wisdom. God has given us great wisdom. And he hasn't just given us a, a little bit of grace so that we would have a little bit of wisdom. Lavished. Poured out wisdom to give us, poured out grace to give us wisdom. This is all according to his purpose, verse 9. So God has purposed to pour out grace on us, giving us wisdom so that we'd get this message, we'd understand this mystery. Think about that. Not just given, but lavished. See that chain of things there? Lavished grace to give us wisdom so we understand the mystery? Why? That's where I stop and say, why? Why did God work so hard at this? I'm sure there's some Bible study technique there. But I'm really caused to pause and ask why, mostly because I see God being so concerned and so strong in his pouring out of grace on us. It's right up there with the redemption thing. That, that is obviously critical. But God really wants us to get this mystery, and I need to know why. 
Why does he want Paul to pray for more of it in verse 17 and over in Colossians chapter 1? I take it that it's important for some reason to comprehend this future mighty work of reunification of all things under Christ. I also take it that it's important for some reason that Christians hear the gospel preached to them again. Why? Why does Paul preach the gospel of redemption to the already redeemed? Why does he paint a picture of the end where all things are made new for people who live in the middle where everything is clearly not made new? Why does he do that? Well, a large part of that, I'm sure, relates to something we've already touched on over the past two weeks. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done and will do all of this. What an amazing purpose and will you have. What a marvelous, mighty work you do. Praise your glorious grace. Surely, this is the first and most obvious reason that he tells us these things. It's obvious because it's actually written in verses 3 and 6. And if that was all the reason, if that was it, that would be reason enough because he is so worthy of that worship. He's so worthy of praise. He should lay out his, his work that he's done and we should respond to that, giving him the praise that he deserves. And also, we were made to be worshipers. So something in us actually is given, given life when we worship, given life when we praise. Surely that's the first and I think most significant reason that he's laid this out here and has been so concerned to give us grace, to give us wisdom, to give us understanding of this mystery. He wants us to know and to respond in praise to what he has done. That's the first reason, I'm sure. We've talked about that before. But I think there's a second reason, at least one other reason, that you and I need to grasp these parts of the gospel according to the Ephesians for at least this following reason. We are all tragically short-sighted. We're myopic, nearsighted. We are spiritually short-sighted. Physically short-sighted people are ruled by the geographically immediate. If you're unable to see for any distance, then, then the hoodlum who threatens you right here has much more influence on you than the police car right over there. Because you can't see the police car right over there, and you have no hope of help. That's what's going on with us, spiritually speaking. We are ruled by the immediate. We lack proper perspective of all the realities. We see some of the realities, but we don't see all of the realities. Just look at your life. Remember that list of things that I ran through earlier when talking about the non-Christian life, separated from God, a symptom of the, the separation being a whole host of things, guilt for sin, fear of the unknown, fear of death, anxiety about how we will eat and pay our bills and interact with our families, living to please people, performing for them so that they'll approve of us, regard us as significant. Remember that list of stuff? At that point, I was talking about the non-Christian life, the life separated from God. Any of that characterize your Christian life? I'm sure it does. It characterizes mine. This morning, in fact, they dealt with different anxieties about different things. That's where we live, too. And to Christians like that, Christians dealing with those issues... In other words, Christians like us, 
Paul preaches the gospel of redemption. He preaches in the hopes of lifting our eyes to see God and His provision for our guilt. Real provision for guilt has been provided. What a mighty work. He preaches in the hope of lifting our eyes so that we can see God and His knowledge of and control over all of our unknowns. To see God and His reign over death and bills and food and relationships. To see God who says, I approve of you. Well done. To see God to remind us that He has dramatically proven that He Himself is for us. Who can be against us? He preaches so that we would see God and trust Him. And it is all derived from, goes right back to the cross. And He says, look what I have done at the cross. Am I not going to take care of everything else? Trust me. That's got to be one of the reasons He preaches the Gospel to Christians. To remind them of what has happened. We live dominated by the things that are right here and we have a hard time seeing what's just right over there. A cross and a God who was drastic before us. Sometimes short-sightedness is revealed in behaviors and attitudes and anxieties like these. And so we need to hear the gospel all over again. At other times, though, short-sightedness comes with a big dose of pain. Pain screams at us in ways that are a bit different than things like pride or greed or foolishness or lack of trust. Humble, generous, wise, trusting people still live in a world where cancer and miscarriages and a host of other hurts have become common. Pain seems capable of outright robbing people of any chance to see beyond the most immediate. Screams so loudly at us. Seems to demand short-sightedness. It is short-sightedness, but it's a little different. It needs to be dealt with in a little different way. I am aware that anything that I mention, anytime I bring up anything that, that touches on pain and then say something brief, that I'm in great danger of being trite. I'm aware of that. But right now I have to be brief. I just want to say that if you need to talk further about this, please come and see me. But briefly, I want to say just a word about how verse 10 and the second mighty work of God may be of special help here. What is the effect of telling beleaguered, suffering, hard-pressed, depressed people. People are tempted to lose hope as they look around, and everywhere they look, right here, right in front of them, are situations and a world and personal realities that are devastating and painful and hard. What is the effect of telling beleaguered people that one day all of this will be swept up and dramatically, drastically changed? What is the effect of pouring onto them grace so that they wouldn't just hear this as words out of the preacher's mouth or as dry print on a page, but they would hear it and believe it that one day everything will be made new. One day everything will be reversed. God is going to fix it. God is going to come and bring justice. You know, we may never know 
all the reasons particular problems come to us, we'll never be able to satisfactorily answer the problem of evil. But the best answer that I know to it is that somebody has done something about it and will one day reverse it and eliminate it. Somebody is on the job. God is on the march, and he is going to fix it. Telling that to beleaguered, hurting people in a way with an abundance of God's grace behind it so that they believe it and embrace it. The effect is to change perspective and give hope. To inspire perseverance. Hold on. Stay the course. A different reality is coming. God sees you and He cares about you and He has acted to fix it. And one day He will fix it all. Keep walking in a worthy manner. When you look around and you see a vast array of problems, when you look around and you see a life marred by the fall, marred by your own sin and the sin of all those around you, when you see that, and open your eyes and see it, don't deny it. God doesn't call us to live in illusion, like everything is just happy, it's just wonderful. No, that's false. See that and embrace it. Don't live in illusion, live illumined. See that and also see this. That's God's intention that he, gave, that he gave grace for. To give us wisdom so that we could see the mystery working itself out. Proven to have begun because of the cross. Good evidence that it's going to be carried out all the way to the end. God is for you. God is for you amidst your pain as well. There's a lot more that I could say about that. If you need to talk about that more, please come see me. I think, though, that he means for us to trust him and to derive hope from this truth. And this is important because we live in a sin-plagued world. A whole host of problems all around us are caused by sin. And God has done mighty works in Christ to overthrow it. The work of redemption is bringing people in, still even today, the part of the work of reunification that will one day be concluded with everything brought to heal under Christ's authority. God has done mighty works in Christ, and you need to regularly see that. You need to regularly see it so as to hold the proper perspective. These things are real, and so is that. May God give grace to us. We may have more wisdom to understand the mystery more clearly. Let me pray. Lord, we can't make ourselves see. So would you give grace to open our eyes? Lord, Paul prayed for a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and knowledge of you. And I ask that too. Give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation. Help us to know you and to see your plan at work, moving towards completion day by day. Father, build trust in us, I pray. For these works, we give you great praise. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 
9430091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.